Thank you, Ben, worship team. Lofty ideas expressed beautifully, isn't it? Well, 245 years ago, today, our nation had its first Congress, who met to uh, approve the Declaration of Independence, which reads in part, For we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. From the consent of the governed. That was the revolutionary part. What follows is a litany of complaints against the King of England, and then it concludes with this final phrase. And to the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, do we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Not all the people in that room were Christian. Godly, certainly, believed in natural law, believed in a God, perhaps. But there were godly men in that room. And they made their voices heard. And their testimony extends through that document even to our time today. Praise God. About a year ago, in July, I started, uh, I, was, I had the privilege of speaking, and I started a series on the Beatitudes. I figured it would take me three years um, to get through it, but I thought that would be fine. And so on the first Beatitude, was the, uh, on July 11 and 12, uh, was the Sermon on the Mount. Correction, it was, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It was the beginning, uh, the Beatitudes were the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The first one actually is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we talked about being poor in spirit as having uh, a proper view of who I am before a holy God. Secondly then, as blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And mourning pertains to uh, my awareness of my own sin. Third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness is defined as putting the interests of others before my own. This, this morning, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This was the fourth beatitude, and it's been called, number one in your notes, the righteousness beatitude is a pivot between the first three and the rest of the beatitudes. It's a pivot. It's an if-then. If we are poor in spirit, if we mourn over our sin, if we are meek, then we will be in right relationship with God, then we will be righteous and then we will be merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers. Number two in your notes, righteousness is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew 5.20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So like many people, then and now, people prefer their own righteousness. They prefer to substitute the righteousness of God with their own. And that's where we get into trouble. Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, talking about the physical needs of life, all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus taught us to pursue the righteousness of God first. Number three in your notes, the Sermon on the Mount gives a primer on how to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I've outlined the Sermon on the Mount in your notes. And you can see there is a list of topics that Jesus covers uh, to be salt and light, to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfills the law. A reconciliation, dealing with offenses, divorce, keeping an oath, giving, praying, and forgiving. Things that we hear from this pulpit every week. Topics pertaining to righteousness. And as I, as I went through that, including the warnings that are at the end, don't take the easy route and beware of false prophecy, I wonder... What would happen if we were to take that list, those topics, perhaps uh, assume a sensitivity, awareness of those topics where we could do some improvement, we could have some work on. Put those topics before God and pray over them and say, God, where could I, where could I do better? We are able to move the dial individually in our own practice of righteousness. If we were to all do that. I wonder, first of all, what the impact would be in our families. And I wonder what the impact would be in our church, the impact of the church in our community. And I wonder what our impact would be in the world. Interesting to think about. Number four, in your notes, the Holy Spirit is commissioned to promote righteousness. To promote righteousness, John sixteen eight. And when he is come, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. Number five in your notes, our sin nature prefers to pursue its own righteousness. Our sin nature prefers us to pursue its own righteousness. But he, this is Jesus uh, talking to a lawyer, and uh, the lawyer asked, well then, but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And what follows after that, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Later in uh, Luke 18.9, in a different passage, Jesus spoke a parable unto the crowd, and he described uh, a, um, he spoke this parable unto those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, and what followed was the parable of the publican, publican, and the uh, Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. You, re- you recall the Pharisee was judgmental, said, I'm I'm grateful to you, God, that I fast twice a week and I do all these holy things and I'm not like this bad guy over here. 
We prefer our own righteousness. Well, there are other passages like that. And we live in a period of history that is steeped in self-righteousness. Regrettably, the church is not immune from that. Number six in your notes, most people are not interested in hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Jesus said to the Pharisees, even so you outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity, Matthew 23. We have some friends in ministry in Sierra Leone. They're from, from Britain. And um, the guy has a British name. It's called Nigel. And he uh, worked for an NGO in Freetown for most of his career. He decided to go out on his own. So he bought 30 acres of land out in the country. And he was going to do the habitat thing, Jimmy Carter thing, and build houses for people in slums. And so they go out to the slum and they, they set up all kinds of business. They have a, a bakery and an auto mechanics place and all these different uh, building and construction and garbage pickup even, which is very useful in Africa. But anyway, they have all these businesses and they can employ people uh, from the slums so that they can support themselves. It's a really good idea. And they have certain criteria. Uh, most of the people that they deal with are Muslim. Sierra Leone is 80% Muslim. And so oftentimes the families will come with more than one wife. And they'll say, well, you don't have to get rid of a wife, but you can't add any more if you come to this compound. And when you come here, you have to work. You have to support yourself. And you have to attend some type of faith service. They build a church on the compound. Uh, most of the people are Muslim, but you can go out to the community for that. And they're encouraging people to join the church and become part of that ministry. Well, the ministry has been in effect for several years. And I communicate with them every time I go there. And uh, you know, how are things going? And we share certain resources. And they've had some surprising results when they go to the slums they're given a group of people that they interview and they'll probably take a tenth of the people that they interview and of those people that they interview once they they agree to come to this compound they have to sign a contract stipulating the criteria that i just described and what they've discovered that that there are certain people who are just probably better off living in the slums well, I don't want to, I don't want to add another wife, a man will say, but I'd, I'd like to exchange this one here for a younger model. <laughs> okay, well, you get to go back to the slums. Well, I appreciate that you've taught me the skill and that I can support myself and, and earn a living, but stealing is just so much easier. I'd rather do that. Yeah, okay, well, you can go back to the slums. Pursuing even a modest, righteous lifestyle involves shifting how we think, involves changing behavior. And that can be really hard. It requires sacrifice and commitment. And pursuing righteousness under God's standard is a price that many people are not willing to pay. Well, I'm going to follow that now with practical steps for pursuing righteousness. I've talked about 
the, the detail that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount and some objections to pursuing righteousness. So let me talk a little bit now about some of the practical steps. Before Sue and I moved to Oregon in 1994, I worked at a large hospital in Tacoma. And the administrator for this hospital was a big fan of skunk works. Now, if you've been very long in business, that's a term that might be familiar to you. It's this notion that you isolate a group of individuals to to produce a particular product or to solve a particular problem. Skunk Works actually began in the Second World War at Lockheed, where they needed to build a fighter that was that would compete with the enemies, and so they built uh, Lockheed built the P-38 Lightning fighter, which was the most prolific airplane built during the Second World War. It could fly longer, could fly faster, and carry more ordnance. Skunk Works has also been credited with the development of Google and of those little banana computers from back in the 80s and for post-it notes from 3M. So our administrator said, well, let's use this idea to develop healthcare services in our community that will benefit patients. That sounded fun. So I applied for a grant to develop an inpatient smoking cessation clinic inpatient smoking cessation where you get people who are smokers want to quit and you bring them in the hospital. We isolated the rehab uh, unit, which wasn't in use on the weekend anyway. It had a nice hot tub and some nice facilities. We'll put you in there. We'll teach you how to stop smoking and then follow through for six months on an outpatient basis. Well, it wasn't successful. Our statistics after a year were roughly slightly better than people who quit on their own. So it was a kind of an expensive solution. So we bagged it. We didn't do it anymore. But I was interested in the process of learning how you pursue and how you treat people with addiction. And one of the things that I learned is about this 12-step philosophy, the 12-step approach. And addiction treatment at that time was divided between people who agreed with and supported 12-step philosophy and those who didn't. 12-step was originated with, uh, originally was called Alcoholics Anonymous, still is, and was developed by a couple of guys, one, Bill Wilson and Dr. Uh, Bob Smith in the 30s. He was a surgeon, and they worked together with a Christian group to develop these 12 steps. And if you're familiar with it, there's 12-step program is actually a kind of secular way to pursue righteousness. And there's a lot of Christian elements, and it's been sort of neutralized with language. Instead of reference to God, it's a reference to a higher power. But the, the interesting thing about this approach is that it was more effective than anything else we tried. Employing 12-step to helping people with addiction is more effective than doing nothing, than willpower. It's more effective than treating addiction with chemicals. And it's more effective at that time than any other uh, addiction treatment that was available. So I became fully engaged in the debate over 12 steps 
And Christians who understand the 12-step philosophy understand that the Christian elements in it, and that's why it's effective. The problem for those who disagreed with the 12-step program was that it works, and the other things didn't. So with the passing of time, people have generally come to understand that 12-step philosophy works better than most anything else. And so they've come up with, the debate has shifted to, well, why is it? What is it about the 12-step program that makes it effective? Some people have suggested, well, it's because you get in meetings and you have social networking around similar problems, and that's the therapy to it. Other people have suggested, well, it's the accountability and the commitment to regular meetings that makes it effective. Some people have suggested that it's uh, the practical innovations that are used, but Christians generally understand that it's because of godly principles that are introduced in the concept. All truth is God's truth. People who live their lives, say, by the principles revealed in the book of Proverbs, generally tend to have a better life, have better outcomes in their life, regardless of whether they're Christian, regardless of whether they go to church or not or love Jesus, because all truth in Proverbs is God's truth. So what follows now under the practical steps are four research-tested principles from the 12 Steps program that uh, don't have time to go through all 12 of them, but I wanted to pick four significant ones because... Uh, they have relevance to our pursuit of righteousness. Number one, acknowledge that God is sovereign. Now, you would think this would be an easy one, especially for Christians. But the biggest barrier with Christians in pursuing righteousness is our unwillingness to relinquish that one issue in our lives that keeps us from pursuing righteousness. And so this becomes an important step. When you remove uh, all the, remove this step from all the others, people tend to be less effective in overcoming addiction. And when you remove this step as a Christian in pursuing righteousness, we will be less effective in pursuing righteousness. Romans 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, and how to perform which is good I find not. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the renewing of your mind. Any kind of change in behavior begins with changing how we think about things. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, Romans 12. Number two in your notes, find a partner who is willing to hold you accountable. Accountability is a key part of the success in overcoming addiction. It's a key part in our success in pursuing righteousness. 
We hear a lot about accountability at JBC, and we recognize that bearing one another's burdens is an important part of the Christian life, particularly involving anything that's hard. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James 5.16. I've often thought fervency has more to do with time and volume, not loud, but just volume of time, than it has to do with emotion. Number three, take a personal inventory of sin. This step was a surprise to me when I first heard about it. I'm way back talking about smoking cessation because why does my offense have anything to do with addiction? And why would that be included in a secular smoking cessation philosophy? Christians often dismiss this step as well as, well, my sin is overcome by the blood. I'm under grace. I don't have to worry about my sin. And while this is true, God's forgiveness is sufficient. Taking a personal inventory and examining our lives for unrepented sin is a crucial step, not only in overcoming addiction, but also in pursuing righteousness. 1 Corinthians 11, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks to himself damnation, not discerning the Lord's body. Number four, having determined offenses, make an effort to repair the damage from wrongdoing. Matthew five twenty three. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has offensed against you, Then leave your gift at the altar, go your way, and first be reconciled to your brother, and then bring your gift to the altar. I don't think it's possible to overestimate the importance of that step. In my own experience, past offense is an issue that comes frequently to mind during sustained periods of prayer, like the five days of prayer that we do. God will bring issues to mind that I have long forgotten or long pushed aside. Even offenses from childhood can be brought to mind that have gone unrepaired. Fellowship that needs to be restored. And those offenses have the potential to interfere not only with my prayer life, but also my effectiveness in God's work. After About three decades ago, Sue and I attended another church in another state, and I was asked to serve on the board of elders. I was given the responsibility for fellowship. This board was organized that way. Each elder, each person had a particular task in the church, and I was given fellowship. I was the young guy on the board, And fellowship meant that we just organized social gatherings every, you know, on a regular basis, had a potluck every month, and we did events around the holidays. This church had an Easter brunch that they did every year, been doing it for 20 years. And the same two ladies had organized this Easter brunch for 20 years, all 20 years. And every year it was done exactly the same way. 
They even had the same table decorations. When the brunch was over, they would box up the table decorations like sacred relics and put them in storage so they could be used next year. Very traditional. Well, this particular year, our church was meeting, uh, was under a construction program, and so we were meeting in a nursing home. And we, um, the uh, hassle, the ability to do the Easter brunch was challenged by the fact that we were in a different location. And so one of the two ladies, I'll call her Mrs. Johnson, not related to anybody here, um, assumed name, I should say. She decided that the whole thing was just too stressful, and so we were going to cancel the uh, Easter brunch that year. Well, I heard about it about two minutes before a Sunday morning service was to start. The guy who does the announcements came up to me and I said, and he said, Mrs. Johnson says we're canceling the Easter brunch. Is that right? I said, I don't see no reason to cancel the Easter brunch. So the guy went up and announced it from the pulpit. Mrs. Johnson was furious. And she cornered me in the hallway after the service. And we exchanged what I will call less than sanctified words. And after that time, whenever I saw Mrs. Johnson, if she were walking this way, I would walk that way. So I wouldn't have to greet her. If I needed something from her, I would ask somebody else. Go ask Mrs. Johnson for such and such. And I can remember sitting in service boiling mad because of the disrespect that she had shown without regard to my own beam, as it were. And that went on for a month. But I was convicted by this passage, Matthew 5, 23, 24. If you bring your gift to the altar, the sacrifice of praise in worship... And remember that your brother has offense against you. Go, leave your gift, and be reconciled to your brother. Very sobering. There's another good one. Psalm 66 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So I screwed up the courage and called Mrs. Johnson. And I reminded her of the conversation we had in the hallway. And I said, I need to apologize to you for the things that I said. And she was surprised by the call, and she was very gracious, appreciated the call. And over the discussion said, you recognize, of course, that I was justified in what I said. I said, no, but that's not the reason I called. And we were able to make a joke about it, and eventually we restored the fellowship by a mutual application of grace. But imagine, this congregation was about 300 people. Imagine if that existed with every person in that congregation. What damage does unresolved conflict do to our testimony? What damage does unresolved conflict do to a family or a business? What damage does it do to our effective, our collective mission? 
And even greater, what damage does it do to the mission of the church? We will never be a righteous people. We will never be effective in our testimony if we harbor bitterness toward other people. Final step is one that's familiar to people of JBC, not particularly in the 12th step, but I felt it was relevant nonetheless. Number five, maintain the personal spiritual disciplines, including Bible reading, prayer, worship, giving, gathering, self-examination, and seeking wisdom. Now in the spirit of Independence Day, I would like to conclude with a patriotic metaphor. Last month, on June 2nd, a great naval historian by the name of James Hornfisher died at the age of 55. Mr. Hornfisher wrote several books, at least four of them that I know of, on naval history in World War II, and one of them was called The Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors. It's a book that I read shortly after it was published, and it's a story about a battle that takes place in Lady Gulf, which is in the Philippines. Early in the war, General Douglas MacArthur was living in the Philippines, Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and then they attacked the Philippines and took it over. Well, he had to escape, escape to, the, to um, Australia. But he left a radio broadcast just as he was leaving uh, that was, became famous. It became associated with MacArthur. And this phrase included was, I shall return. And when you think of MacArthur, that's often the phrase that comes to mind. And so in 1944, there was a a fleet of ships, of sailors and marines, who were going to the Philippines to retake it. And everybody in the world knew that. It was the logical next step in the battle for the Pacific Now, the Philippine Islands, if you think of a clock, the Philippine Islands are right here in the middle. And to your one o'clock is Japan. And way off to the east is the Hawaiian Islands at three o'clock, roughly. And at six o'clock is Australia. And the Japanese knew that we were going to attack the Philippines. And so their objective was to destroy our troop ships, to sink our ships that had all the marines and soldiers. And so the Japanese sent their biggest ships, what I refer to as sort of comparably as the, the uh, semi-trucks, the aircraft carriers, to Hawaii as a faint, as a fake. And they were, the intent was to, with, to draw off the big ships from the Philippines so that they would have, be more successful in attacking the troops. And Ad, Admiral Bull Halsey, who is the admiral for the USS Enterprise, knew that that was likely a feint. We had, we had broken their code. We understood their communications between each other. He knew it was a feint, but he went after him anyway. It's considered bad form at that time to allow an enemy fleet to approach the Hawaiian Islands yet again. So he went after it and he sunk it. But in the meantime, the Japanese had three other portions of their fleet that attacked the Philippines. And one came from the south, 
and one came from the east. And then there was another one, a third one, that came from about your turn 30, what was called the center position. Now in the south and the east, again, we had we knew it was coming. We had a substantial Navy fleet there, and they handled the attack just fine. But this 1030, this center position was weak. We weren't expecting it. And so it was guarded by a group of ships called um, escort, or escort carriers and destroyers. So a destroyer is an escort vessel, and its job is to run a picket fence around a fleet while it's underway. And it's the first line of defense against submarine attack or airplanes that would attack the main fleet. So it has to move fast. It has to go to where the attack, where the threat's coming from. And so it's built for speed. And because it's built to run fast, it has a thin hull. It has low weight. And they traded off defense for speed. The legend has it that at that time, if an enemy shell were to fi- fired against a destroyer, that it could penetrate the hull, go through the ship, and outside the other hull without ever exploding, without ever triggering the firing mechanism. They weren't really good surviving attack. And the sailors who sailed them call them, for that reason, they call them tin cans. Last stand of the tin can sailors. So here you have this major Japanese fleet consisting of cruisers, which you could compare to, say, a a U-Haul moving van. And then you have, up against them, you have um, light carriers, which would be like a Chevy Malibu, and destroyers. Think Volkswagen Beetle. Classic struggle of David versus Goliath. There was a captain, Ernest Evans, a skipper of the USS Johnson, a destroyer, saw the threat. He saw this fleet coming after our troops headed for the Philippines. And so he went out against, without order, he just went out and attacked by himself, little Volkswagen going after these big ships. They had 18-inch guns. He had 5-inch guns for planes. And other destroyers saw what was going on, so they joined him. And a light cruiser joined him, and they, they attacked this Japanese fleet. The attack was so courageous and so violent that the admiral of the Japanese fleet, a Mr. Uh, admiral Takeo Kunita, thought that it must be Bull Halsey and the Enterprise coming back from, from Hawaii, attacking him from over the horizon. And so he said, I'm getting out of here. And he went back to Japan. The troops were saved. In, his, in, the, in the meantime, the U.S. lost 1,000 sailors and four ships, their names worth mentioning, the USS Robert Johnston, the USS Hull, the USS Samuel B. Roberts, all destroyers, and the light carrier USS Gambier Bay. In his lifetime, historian 
James Hornfisher, described the battle off Samar, the island where the battle occurred, was near Samar Island. He said, it's what Americans are capable of when their backs are against the wall. These sailors saw a need, and they made themselves willing, and they paid the sacrifice. It's compared to the story of David and Goliath, except that in the story of David and Goliath, it's not really a contest between David and Goliath. It's between Goliath and David's God. And David was a vessel, useful to the master and prepared for every good work. David was willing. David was courageous. And David was righteous. This Independence Day, you and I are engaged in another great struggle, great contest for the heart of our people and the soul of our nation. The weapons of this war are not to be found in protests in the ballot box or in blistering social commentary on Facebook. There is a place for Christians to speak, as was evident back in the Declaration of Independence. The Christians were there, the Christians were present, the Christians were salt and light. But our standard is with love, giving preference to one another, honor, and looking at at the beam in our own eye first. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Would to God this morning each of us take stock to our own commitment to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to engage the enemy of the bride of Christ with willingness, with courage, and with righteousness, with all the weapons we have at our disposal to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for our country. I thank you for the privilege that we have to live here, and I just thank you for the beacon of light that this country has been to the world. We were told once that America is great because she is good. And when she ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. I pray that you would fill our nation with people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we would change our families. We would change our communities, and we would change our nation, and we would change our world. I just pray to this end that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.